This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, you're very welcome to another episode of FNI Rap Chat with myself, Paul Webster. I hope everyone's doing well out there, getting to enjoy the nicer weather and uh, maybe looking forward to a bit of a summer and hopefully plenty of filming going on over the next few months when things start to get back to normal a little bit. Um, so it was great to have a chat with Peter McKenna, the showrunner of the forthcoming series Kin. It sounds absolutely amazing. We couldn't talk too much about it, but it will be out later this year. And I think it's going to be a real cracker of a show. We did chat about his career setting up Red Rock um, and previous writing stints working in the UK and uh, it's very honest chat. Uh, Peter was kind of a, a late comer to writing really um, and uh, had done some other kind of interesting stuff before getting into writing and uh, it took him a while to really have the confidence to actually consider himself a writer I think that's the one thing that a lot of screenwriters can identify with and uh, yeah he just had a, a really interesting take on how to get into writing and uh, kind of the pitfalls that we can all fall into as well so yeah I think you will enjoy this so let's go to Peter McKenna. <laughs> So, Peter McKenna joining us on the line from Kilkenny. Thanks very much for taking the time. Um, you would be really known as a TV writer. What What is it about TV that really has done it for you? Um, well, yeah, I would be, like I'd say, 95% of it, if more, of everything I've written, even like specs and everything, would be TV. So I would definitely be a TV writer. Um, I suppose, like, when, when I was starting out, I would have made short films, and I would have written and directed short films, and my aspirations probably would have been equally to, to write film and write for TV. Um, but in truth, there was more opportunities in TV. There was more of a ladder. There was more, you know jobs going and what I found certainly in the beginning um, was you could spend years and years in development developing a project that you know may not get made uh, and with TV after doing that for a while I suppose when I was starting out the kind of the idea of working on a TV show and then within like five months it was made and you can move on and you know and it's on TV uh, and I suppose the other thing to say is like when I was growing up um watching television like I probably would have watched a lot more television than I would have watched and we were kind of like my parents had BBC like in the 80s and I would have watched a lot of like play for the day so there would have been really really good writing on TV like there was like uh, Alan Bennett, Dennis Potter, Alan Clark, Alan Bleasdale, there was play for today there was like really really great stuff to watch on TV so I always associated television even though it wasn't always like that, but I always associated it with like stuff I really, really loved. So uh, I never had a kind of like a feeling that TV was like, I suppose, uh, a plan B or, you know, a fallback option. I always liked TV as much as, as, as I like cinema. 
Well, it's part of that, the kind of, you know, going into school the next day and, and the immediacy of it and talk people talking about it. Yeah, com- completely. And I remember that in school. And it's funny because I went, to, like, I went to boarding school when I was young. So I would have spent from the ages of seven to uh, 16 in boarding school. So I didn't have that kind of experience. And we had no TV or very little TV. And we might have a movie. Like, I remember when I was in, you know, in junior boarding school, we'd have a, a movie on a Sunday night and they'd pull back the doors between the classrooms and they'd set it up. And I remember waiting for the priest to come back with the the movie in the cans with the reels and like they wouldn't tell you what it was and you try to catch a glimpse of them to see if the name was on it. Uh, and so, um, but, but what we did have as well was I had always slightly different holidays to my friends who were in day school from where I grew up. So like I would spend periods uh, at home on my own watching TV uh, and doing that. But then when I left at 16 and I went to day school in Sutton, there was definitely that. And there was things, but it wasn't really drama, I must admit. It was like Top of the Pops or Young Ones. I remember the Young Ones being a huge thing when for a year or so that like every Thursday you'd watch the Young Ones and everyone would go in the next day and and, uh, and talk about it. That's probably way, way too old for you. But, but I yeah. remember, yeah. <laughs> yes is the answer, it is. And, and I just love TV, I have to say, like, like I really did. So, uh, and because, as I said, my holidays were always slightly out of sync, I did spend lots of time when all my friends were back in school, then maybe I'd have an extra week or or whatever and I'd spend that basically watching movies and BBC Two used to have like you know films in the afternoon and stuff like that and I used to watch loads of that so no it, it was definitely it was definitely a big part of my life right and the, the word showrunner we're not too sure what to make of it sometimes here in Ireland what what how do you feel about that title um, well, I, I, I don't know what you, I don't know what you mean by the question like I can talk about the role and all that uh, yeah well, I'll tell you what I think, honestly, when yeah. I started when I started working on shows um, and I would work on shows, often I would never meet another writer. So I would go in as a writer of an episode. I would go into, I would deal with a script editor. I would get notes from producers. I would have no idea who's cast. I would no, have no idea of anything. Uh, and and then you you and you know I remember saying at one stage the reason I would know a job was over like that they had finished with me, it was because the phone stopped ringing. Like they never, you know, there was no end point. It was kind of like, I haven't heard from them in a week. I know they're filming my episode. I presume that's the end. And, yeah. and it would be the end until the next season if they call you again. Um, so you were in this kind of like living in a bubble in isolation, making no creative choices about the stuff you had written. And, and maybe that's, you know, maybe that's the right way, but it was mainly directors and producers and it was closer to maybe the way it works in cinema where, you know, you were just, you were, you know, a satellite on your own somewhere else. Uh, and then sometimes, sometimes I'd watch stuff that had been directed by me and i go, that, that's amazing. And there's no better feeling. Like I, I still see it. Like when a director or an actor makes my work better, I just love that. It's just brilliant. Like, you know, uh, but then there's other times where people would, missed a point of something and that would be kind of frustrating or they wouldn't get it or you know and like and a phone call or a collaboration could have made that happen it would have just taken but there was no collaboration you know whatsoever so that was what it was like in the beginning so to be in a position now where you know i get as the writer to make every decision or almost every decision like what clothes they wear what house they're living in i was saying all those decisions who's cast in every role you know should she be wearing a brown coat or a blue coat is this the kind of thing she would do? You know, all those things all the time. And on Kin recently, which is which is the most recent show, like I've only been showrunner in two shows. And they were quite different for, for various reasons, and we can discuss that later. 
and, and mainly they were to do a budget, to be honest, and, and at the scale of what we were doing. Um, but um, on Kin, I would write, because you're still writing as they're shooting, I made a choice to write on set. And I don't mean like like in on the set, but like there, in another room, behind, in my car, wherever. So right. like you're, you're always there, you're always available to people. So when decisions had to be made, they could come to me. Like I was only a minute away. And I think... For me, having started out in one in one kind of model where the writer had no say, to be in a show in a position now where I have a lot of say in in the things I write and how they appear and how all that kind of how they're kind of realised is it, really really exciting, really gratifying. Now, the title, like whether you're like showrunner or or executive producer or whatever it is they want to call you or or, or nothing. But like just having that that creative control is is brilliant and it's huge. It's kind of it's kind of scary because you know you can't be blaming anyone else. Everything is on you. But but there's something that's I guess when I started out writing, like and I, like I obviously there was no show there was no showrunner at that at that point. It, it, uh, but I did think like I'll write stuff and I'll make stuff and I'll have a stay uh, like a big say in the stuff that I write. And to be doing that now is is brilliant. It's amazing. And it, it just that seems to be a, a difference from filmmaking or feature film writers don't tend to get that. Or do you think that might be changing as well? I don't think it's changing, uh, but, but I don't have enough experience to know, if you know what I mean. My, yeah. From what I'm here anecdotally and secondhand, I don't. And in truth, that's like once the television model began to go in this way, I had no interest in writing for film, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like now I like I was showrunner in, on Red Rock like five six years ago, and then I've been I've written on other people's shows in between. So I've written on four or five shows with other showrunners between then and Kim. Uh, so I've been like it's not like I'm always showrunner now, and I've, yeah. I've the other and, and and there's advantages to both, and, and, I, and I I quite like doing both, and you know. But and and the interesting thing was, which in my experience is like like I worked with showrunners on 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 English shows, and in truth. Working with an an American company in this situation, I probably had more, uh, like it was more based on an American model. It was right. more; they gave me as much responsibility as I wanted, uh, and that would be whatever I wanted to do with like budget. Now I'm saying like whatever I wanted to be involved in, like so if I wanted to be involved in scheduling and you know whatever it is, they that was open to me, and they encouraged me to do it. Um, and they didn't want me to sit back and not do it. Like they would say to me, the executives, you're the showrunner, go do it. You're the showrunner, you're the showrunner. You, you need to make a decision. And sometimes, particularly as a writer, when you spend a lot of time in the background working on your own, I'd be in group calls in the beginning where we're interviewing people or we're doing something. And, and sometimes, although it's not probably very apparent from me talking now, my in those kind of situations, my default setting would be to sit back and listen or whatever to what is. But they would, I would get text messages with from them in the call going, "You got to speak. You're the showrunner. Take it." Do you know what I mean? Right. So they did not. They weren't wrestling the power with me. I didn't have to wrestle it from these people. Braun Studios were kind of like going, "This is your show. You're the showrunner. Go be the showrunner." So it was very. That was very empowering, and that was very kind of encouraging, and, and it was it was amazing. It was really really good. Great. Um, I might just go back to how you first became a writer, because that's it's not what you kind of 
always thought you'd do. You you had to kind of come to it, right? Well, it, it, it's kind of like, it, it is always what I thought, or not, it's always what I hoped I'd do. Right. Uh, but like, based on nothing, if you know what I mean. Like, I, yeah. I went, like as I said to you a little earlier, I went to boarding school. I probably had a very disrupted school life. My parents lived abroad, and, and, I, and I didn't thrive in school. I certainly didn't thrive academically. I was okay at sports and stuff like that, but academically, I did not thrive at all. I was always, you know, I, I was always, I don't know what, disinterested or daydreamy or unengaged or giddy uh, or immature or whatever it is. And then I, I kind of got into a, a situation, I suppose, where you fall behind in school and it's very, very hard to catch back up. So I was always in the kind of the bottom half of every class and, and things like that. So like my, you know, my, in my head, through it all, like from say 10, 12, I thought I want to make films. I want to make TV. I want to be a writer and I want to make TV and make films. But I did nothing. There was no, like, I never had a teacher who read an essay and thought, oh my God, look at this talent. Like, you should go be a TV. Quite the opposite. Like, you know, I wouldn't dare say it to them because I was doing so badly. But I kept it there and I kind of believed it, like, despite the kind of, the, all the evidence to the contrary, that, like, I was really, really doing badly. And I remember doing my leaving um, and I didn't do a very good leaving. I passed my leaving uh, but, but, you know, and I did a lot of subjects at the very end on my own. Like, I would do honours discs because I was in the past classes for everything. So I did honours economics. One of the te- we had a lovely teacher in the, in the school who helped about five of us who were in past classes to do honours. And I got an okay, but not not brilliant, leaving. Like, like below average, I would say. And I remember in the first two or three rounds of school, college places, I got nothing. And I was going back to repeat. And then out of the blue, the, you know, like in September. I got an offer to a course, marketing administration, that I didn't even remember filling in. <laughs> I didn't know what marketing was. And, and I remember going with my parents down to see the, the career guidance teacher, and she didn't know what marketing was. And like it was before the internet, so she got a book out and looked through it, and we were going, is it sales? Is it advertising? We had no idea. Now, I had applied in my in those things. I'd applied for things like communications in rap minds and stuff like that. So I did, I was interested, but I had done nothing. I'd made no, like, I'd made no films, I'd written no scripts right. um, or anything like that. Like, I, I, and it was very hard to do it. I have a daughter now who's just started college. Like, she was in Young Irish Filmmakers in Ireland and she's made short films and won awards and written scripts. Now, she decided not to do film school and do something else entirely, but she had a portfolio that possibly, if I'd had it, I might have gotten into communications, but I didn't. And I remember after that meeting with the career guidance, my dad saying to me, like, they were a bit at the end of their head, or like my brother was, my younger brother was very academic, right, and he was doing very good, and at that stage they'd kind of written me off and focused all their attention on him, and he, he went on to become a doctor, and they were very proud of him. Uh, but I remember them saying to me at the time, uh, my dad saying to me, if you go back and, because I didn't know what to do, will I take this course, I don't even know what it is, or will I go back and repeat my leaving? And my dad's saying, do you think you'll work any harder if you go back and repeat your leaving again? And I said, mm, probably not. And he goes, then I take marketing. So I did marketing, and I liked, like, the, the subject was fine. Like, you know, yeah. but I had four or five good years. I went to college of marketing design. I met lots of friends I'm still friendly with. Um, and... And I was going down that route, and I'd been offered a job in Rank Xerox, and I'd worked one summer in Rank Xerox in London, and they'd offered me, and I'd done well there. But deep down inside, I kind of thought, this isn't for me. Like, I don't want to go into business. I don't want to do this. And this isn't how I want to spend my life. And, like, I had a lot of friends who did want that, and they wanted, like, you know, 
good jobs and pensions and nice houses, and that's great, and I completely get that. And particularly after spending so long being a writer, I completely understand that. But it wasn't for me, and I kind of knew that. And I was friendly with a girl in college, and she wanted to set up an art gallery. And I kind of said, yeah, let's do that. Let's set up an art gallery. And we did it. Now, I didn't know much about contemporary art, but I, I learned quickly. But it was a way of me not going into business and working in the arts and being in that world, even though I still did not write anything. Like, I wrote nothing. I wasn't, like, keeping a diary or doing anything like that. And and that's how I spent my 20s. I ran an art gallery. In, it was in Mount Street and in Stevens Green. And I lived in Temple Bar where McDonald's is now. It was, there was an old building at the time. And, and it was kind of fun. And we went to openings and we kind of, like, lots of friends. And it was a very, very very enjoyable kind of like way to spend my 20s but I'd always talked about being a writer and I'd done nothing and the girl Josephine who I set up the gallery with like art was her dream she did, she'd ended up marketing a bit like me wanting to go to art college and then wanting to run a gallery and and I kind of I suppose in some ways facilitated her insofar as like I was much more like yeah let's just do it let's just do it and it'll be fine and despite all the difficulties I'd just be pushing on ahead and I think like, uh, then when I was in my late 20s, one day she said to me, you know, and again, I'd written nothing, like not a word. Uh, but I'd always said, I'd like to be a writer. I'd like to write films. I'd like to write TV. And one day she came into me and said, look, I've arranged it so you don't need to come into the gallery on Tuesdays. She goes, now you can stay at home or you can lie in bed or you can go to cafes or you can do whatever you want with that Tuesday. But she goes, I never want you to say that you didn't have the chance to be a writer. And that was a real turning point. Like, it was kind of like, okay, I have to do it now. And, like, I was 29. So I wrote a script, and I would use my, and again, it was pre-internet, that's how old I am. I would go to Hodges Figures. I'd order a book on the script for the subject matter. I would wait six weeks for it to arrive. I bought books like, you know, uh, Screenplay. Uh, I bought the William Goldman. Like, I would spend my, my Tuesdays reading screenwriting books and then tried to write and trying to learn structure. And then I wrote a script over about nine months and I put it into the film board and I put it into a thing called Sources. And again, nobody knew I was writing. Like I told nobody, like my wife who's, who's here with me now, I was going out with her at the time and she used to go, what do you do on the Tuesday? Like, why do you not go to work on the Tuesday? I go, well, I do the accounts for the gallery because we lived in different, we, we had our own flats. I never told her I was writing until I applied for these things. And then I got, accepted to sources which was a euro media thing where screenwriters went to italy and you worked in a group and all that my script got accepted and i got money from the film board uh and still i told nobody like like one or two people knew i had written the script and um, and then i had to tell her and i went to italy and it was kind of amazing i i went over there and sources used to be in groups and there was script editors and there was writers and I remember arriving on the first night and we had this kind of, it was in Umbria, it was like, again, I'd never, like, like you know, uh, and we were just a monastery in Umbria where we were going to spend a week talking about all our scripts and just hanging out. And amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. It was really, really, it was, was amazing. And we had this kind of, like, glasses of wine and getting to meet each other. And people would come up to me, like, because they were all mingling. And they go, like, what are you? Like, meaning, are you a script editor or are you a writer? And I go, I'm a participant. And they go, yeah, but what are you? And I couldn't say it. Like, you know, I just couldn't say I'm a writer because I didn't believe it. And I was, and at this stage, I was, I was 29 and I'd been writing for a year. That's all. 
And then the next day, the way sources worked, and this is probably people who've been on these will know, you're in a group with a with a, with a mentor or a supervisor, and he was uh, Gabriel Aurore was his name. He was a French producer who uh, produced Salon Bombay and things. He was a really really nice man, and there was the rest of us from from, from all around Europe. And he kind of said on the first day, um, he said, "Listen." We have to be brutally honest. There's no point in us being here if we're all going to say... And we'd all been sent each other scripts beforehand. So we'd all read everyone else's in our group of six. I'd read the other five scripts. They'd read mine and we'd all... Know. And he said, we're just like... If we stayed here and we say, like, this is brilliant. This is, we're doing nobody no good. This is like, you know... The, the, it was before the time of a circle of trust. But it was kind of that kind of thing. We're all here. We're all writers. We all know what it's like. Blah, blah, blah. Let's just... We have to be honest. And by doing this, we're helping each other. And the idea was you'd come back... You know, you go home, do a rewrite after this week, and you come back and uh, and then you you know you spend another week together. So he said, "We'll draw them out of the hat. Who will go first? And mine got drawn out of the hat. And like as I said, like nobody read my script. If you know what I mean, my friends really yeah. hadn't read it. My my my, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, hadn't read it. Like I'd never had feedback of any description, and I was incredibly like insecure and like kind of like because I, I didn't even know like what and they call and, and they kind of like now looking at it, it was nothing well it was but like they they drew the obvious they drew attention to the obvious failings in my script and and that's the truth of it, it? but it was like like it was very matter of fact it was like this doesn't work this is kind of lazy he's blah 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 you know i think this is a huge coincidence i don't believe this and i was absolutely gutted and probably if i wasn't in a in a monastery in umbria like miles hundreds of miles from anywhere i probably would have got it if i was if it was a Dublin, i probably would have left i remember ringing my my wife that night and going oh my god i'd love to come home blah 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 and and i was really like bereft and then the next day we went in and we did it on the next person and right. i kind of thought yeah everybody's kind of right this script that is they, the suggestions they're making is making a script better their yeah. suggestion and we did that with everybody and but and by the end of the week i kind of knew i could see the process which i didn't really understand because as i said i just read books uh, and then i went home that was like i probably flew home on a sunday and I went back into the gallery on a Monday, and that was September. And I'd been in the gallery, and we'd set it up together, myself and Josephine. And I said, I'm leaving at Christmas. I'm going to sign on the dole in January and become a writer. And that's what I did. So that was the beginning of it. Uh, yeah. And it was it was amazing. But, I, but by the end of that week, I kind of felt, I suppose, and this is going to sound hokey, I felt kind of like elated and kind of alive in a way that I'd never really felt before. Yeah. And like I'd gone through school always feeling, oh, I'm kind of crap at this. Oh, I have no interest in this. This is boring. Like that kind of, like, as I said, I never had the kind of the English teacher who inspires you. I never had that. Right. But this is the first time sitting there with people talking about stuff that really interested me. And it wasn't just like talking about cinema, like, you know, like fake movies. It was talking about structure within the scripts, talking about how scripts work. Like, like, like I, I like I had a great time in the art gallery and I did enjoy it. But it wasn't my passion. I was living somebody else's passion. But for the first time, probably ever in my life, I really felt with other people. Now, when I used to write in the gallery for that year, I'd write on Tuesdays. But then I got to a point where I, the gallery would shut at six and I would write from six to nine, three hours in the evening on my own with the gallery. And I loved that. I would look forward to it all day to just sit and finish my script and do it on my own. But, but being with other people, talking about script... Like, you know, the, the, the phrase now where they go, like, finding your tribe and all that kind of stuff. Like, that week in, in on Sources in Umbria was the, probably the first time I'd really ever, like, in a creative sense. Like, I, like you know, obviously social and friends and family. And all that. But just in, like, this is what I want to do. 
and I feel absolutely invigorated and elated by what I'm doing and I kind of love it and I can't get enough of it and I never felt that about anything before I was very kind of like oh, this is boring I'm bored by this or I'm really crap at this but this is the first time where I, where I felt different and that was probably the beginning that's great and did, and did you feel at that age you had a bit more to draw on that if you actually maybe started at 18 or 19 Yes and no. I understand the argument for that, but in truth, probably not. For me personally, I understand why yeah. people make that argument, but I was probably very immature. You know, I was very immature emotionally, uh, and I think you know. So I like. I think the stuff I did at that age, and, and we can talk about this as well. How, how like, like the way you write changes, but I don't think the things I was good at at that age were not a, like they were not stuff I could draw from my life. Or, or, or to put it another way, I had not learned how to draw from my life at that age. If you know what I mean. Yeah. What I tended to write in my first, I suppose, five to ten years of writing as being a writer was I tended to write. And I, and, I, and I would always do quite well. And as I said, I got jobs. Uh, I would tend to write things that were quite fast-paced, that could be funny, like I was quite funny and fast-paced and quite well-structured. Uh, so, like, the scripts always read very well. They always read very pacey, and people enjoyed them. But, I, but, I, but and I'm jumping forward a tiny bit now, but, like, I, I worked on the clinic and the first year I was on the clinic, uh, I had a script editor called Claire Bennett, who's an English lady who came over, and she's very, very nice. And she said to me at the end, like after, she goes, you know, I love your writing, blah, blah, blah. Um, and she says, but I've just come off a show called No Angels on Channel 4, and there was another writer who I felt the same about. Uh, but she said, the funny thing, and she wasn't saying it in a mean way, she was being really nice to me, and she was right. But she said to me, you know, you're, it's really, really enjoyable. And it's really enjoyable to read and watch, and it, it flies along. But when, but I never feel anything afterwards. Right. And she was right. And somebody else said that to me later, to to a lesser degree, because I was on that journey then. But like, but you know, um, but yes. So so that was it. So like, I suppose I didn't have, I wasn't able to draw. Like, and, and that's just as a writer, but probably as, as, an, as a person emotionally. I, was, I hadn't learned or I hadn't developed that, that ability to, to draw on things that you feel yourself or you experience yourself and put them on the page in, in a truthful way. I, I didn't know that then. Uh, and I guess some of the early stuff that you worked on, like the clinic and that, it, it is a bit more research-based. Would that be right? Yeah, it is. But well, the first thing, like, I made two shorts. Yeah. I read a read, I read a read, like, and this is no disrespect to anybody who worked on it, but it gives it was all me. I wrote, and, I wrote and directed. At the time, the film board were encouraging people to be, like, writer-directors. And that script that went on, Bria, they funded that uh, to get, uh, um, and, and, it, and, that, and that allowed me to give up my job. But they were going, they wanted me to be a writer-director. I, I made two shorts. I was a terrible director, like a really terrible director. So I would write scripts that were quite good and then make them worse directing them myself and be completely out of my depth and feel that feeling I felt in school is that like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> I'm completely at sea and I'm failing terribly. Uh, so my first short film was really bad. It was really ponderous and boring and like loads of people worked really hard and I feel really bad that like, you know, all these people pulled this effort in and what I produced was so bad. And then I made a second one through shortcuts called Racing Homer, which was better. Like it was, you could see progression, but it still wasn't as good as the script. And that was the thing that really struck me is that like the script was really good and the script helped get me an agent and uh, as did the first, with my first 
script that went to sources and that one, Racing Homer, I got an agent in London who I'm still with, like, I don't know, 25 years later. Um, but I could see that I was writing stuff that was quite good and then making it worse. And I thought, this really isn't kind of like, this isn't kind of really a good model for my career. And then I, again, I went on a thing, they used to have Moonstone in Galway, which was like an Irish Sundance. I used to love going on these courses because I'd never been to film school. So, and you spent three weeks in uh, Renville House with, with scenes from your, your feature and you'd shoot them and they'd provide actors and editing and all that kind of stuff. It was great fun. I went down and did that as a writer-director and I had a really, really good time. But again, I saw the footage at the end and it just, like, you know, I could see it and I go, you know, I'm not a director. I just have to accept that. And once I made that decision, again, it was like a weight lifted. Like I, like I told, I'm not a director. Why am I kidding myself? Just do what you're good at, do what you enjoy. And, and I focused. So I went on to On Home Ground and it was the first TV job I got, which, which, um, which I got fired off at the very end after the read-through and which the, re- which the actors rebelled after my read-through. Um, wow. That myself, yeah, I'd never be there. This is my first time into TV. It had been a funny show because it had been commissioned for two seasons and I was brought on to the second season. And by the time we were shooting the second season, the first season had come out and been panned and everybody knew there was going to be no third season. So it was everybody, we were on this kind of debt ship. Like where everybody like you, do you know what I mean? Everybody thought, and then I got I had to write a net. I got given I was doing one. I can't remember. It was about sports, and I used to play a lot of sports. And I remember it was really funny. I played in Kilkenny, and I played soccer in a team against all the odds down here. Got to the county final, uh, and it was on the day to read through, and I had to miss my county final to go up to this read through uh, in Dublin, and uh, and I got a I. Like, my script was, it wasn't great, but, like, it was probably the same as everybody else. There was other people maybe a bit better, you know. It wasn't, there wasn't this stinker, but there'd been an, an accumulation. And I'd never been to a read-through, so I sat there with another writer who was more experienced than me, and her script was good. Uh, her name is Anne-Marie Casey, a really, really nice lady who, who was, uh, and she was, like, and I sat there at my first ever read-through, and we went through it and they read the scripts and I was just going, oh my God, I can't wait till this is over. And we were about to break up and Sean McGinley, who was the the, the, the main cast member and I suppose the representative of the, of the, the cast there, kind of said, listen, before we go, I, uh, I have something to say. And everyone went, yeah. And then there was all the heads in RTE and the executive producers were there. There was like 40 people sitting around a table. And he goes, these scripts are terrible and we're not going to put up with it anymore. And, and that was it. It was just like, it was... It was a car crash, and they, there was a big argument at the table. And my script was about a character who who was meant to be gay, and this was his coming out episode. But with every draft, people would lose the nerve about what you could say. This is like a long time ago. So, like in the end, he ended up kind of like you know saying something like. Mary, I feel a little bit different, or something ludicrous that intimated at like he. His, uh, his orientation, but 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 never said the said it out loud. Okay. And the actor who was playing that was going, when I was cast a year ago, I was told my character's gay. And after my coming out episode, I still don't know if he's gay. And so it was that kind of car crash. And then the next day I went in and Again, it was like quite a funny now, but it wasn't funny at the time. But they, I arrived in, I, I walked. Is this too much detail now? My, no, this is great. <laughs> are you sure? Okay. Uh, I, 
I, I went home that evening and I'd moved to Kilkenny only, so it's 20 years ago, I'd moved to Kilkenny only like in the last year, we were building a house and renting a house and my wife had given up her job because we had a baby. And we were, so I was at a kind of time where it meant a lot to me, it was very, very important to me to make the money as a writer, it was my first TV job. And we went up to Dublin and we stayed with my parents um, and I remember going out to my parents' house after to reach her and... And I'm like, say to my wife, I'm, I'm going to be fired. I'm like, they're going to fire me tomorrow. And she goes, you always say that. You always say you're going to be fired. Don't be such an alarmist. And I was going, oh, no, no, this is different. It really was. you know. And I went through it all. And then she dropped me in for the, the follow-up meeting the next day with RT and all that kind of stuff. And I bumped into one of the RT execs, a woman named Joe Caleb, who's left now, who I knew a little bit. I'd worked with stuff on BBC Northern Ireland with her and stuff like that. So I knew her a little bit, not super well. And... Um, we walked from the city centre up to, I can't remember, was it Great? I can't remember where it was. Oh, it's a place up near uh, Stony Batternet. It's been turned into a cam- campus up there. Um, but we walked up there together for about 20 minutes and she was laughing, not laughing, but she was kind of, oh my God, yesterday, what did the, and she was very friendly. And I kind of thought like, you know, if they were firing me, she wouldn't be like this. She'd be uncomfortable with me. She was like, kind of like joking about it with me. Uh, so I thought, oh, maybe I was wrong. Maybe my wife is right. I'm just an alarmist. And then I walked in and the two producers were waiting and they said, can we have a word? And they brought me into a room. And basically what they did was they said, Look, yesterday did not go well. And it didn't. So this is what we're going to have to do now. We're going to need you to come to Dublin and stay in Dublin and work in the office. And I went, yeah, okay. And then we're going to need X, who was like the, I can't remember the name, of somebody to write, the, the head writer on it was going to have to write some of your scenes. Yeah. And then... And they said the third thing, and I can't even remember what it was, but it became clear. They were they were they were saying things that they knew would be very difficult for me in the hope that I was going, I can't do that. Um so I kind of said, Listen, if you want to fire me, you're gonna to have to fire me. I'm, I'm not gonna resign. And they looked at each other and they said, Can you give us five minutes? So I had to go out, sit down, wait. And the woman from RT was looking at me, going, like, what, what? What was going on, Peter? And then they called me back in, they fired me. Now they were very decent in many ways. They they gave me my credit and they gave me my full fee. So I got paid and I got my credit and I rang my agent and I thought that's the end of my career there. And she was kind of like, everybody gets fired. Um and I thought she was just being nice, but like, but it's kind of true. And it was really it was a really, really valuable lesson for me insofar as um, it really, like, you could say it scarred me, but you could also say it made me very, very aware that you, how close as a writer in TV you are always to being fired. So it informed my behavior and a lot of things from then on. Like I never, like I worked really hard on first drafts. Like I never ever thought, oh, I'll just put something in just to get by. Cause I, I kind of had this kind of thing, like I'm not going to be fired again. And, and, right. and, and that was it. So that was my first job. And then I went on to the clinic and stuff like that. So, uh, so it was, it was a good time in your career maybe to get that lesson. It was really, well, it was good in one way. Like it, like it, like it was good. Like, it was, what would you say, it left a really strong mark on me. But because it was at the beginning of my career, uh, if I if it happened to me now, I'd be much more sanguine or philosophical about it, which I wasn't then. It really did kind of shake me and knock my confidence. Uh, but it also made me very determined. Like, I went home and wrote, like, you know, I went home 
and I wrote something after going in. It was a difficult process. It wasn't like I, that's just the tip of the, the, the read through was the tip of the, the iceberg. It was a very right. difficult process on a show where nobody was very happy. But after it, I just went home and also writing stuff that you don't want to write, like doing stuff that like you're told to, which I, which was very difficult and I wasn't used to that. Mm. So I went home and I wrote like a 55 minute monologue for stage, like just something I wanted to write completely mine. And like it got made and 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 it won an award. But the main thing was, like, it got me out of work in a funny way. And I did the Writers Academy ten years later, and that was my sample piece that I put in something like that. Because like I remember them saying in the writer, the BBC Writers Academy, put something in that represents your voice. And I remember going home after on home ground and going, I'm just going to write what I want to write, and I don't care what it is and what length or whatever. I'm just telling the story I want to tell. And I wrote that thing, and 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 it served me really, really well afterwards. It got me. It actually got me two jobs. They got me a job on BBC uh, for a show called Frankie, and it got me on the BBC Writers Academy. So, like that anger and that frustration that came out of being fired really, really helped me in the long run. But at the time, it didn't feel like it was helping. It felt like my career was over. And Ireland is quite small as well. And, um, and like, it wasn't like streamers and all that were this huge world, even going to England and going, working on English shows. Like I remember I'd read about Irish writers, like, you know, could work on the bill or something like that, uh, or, or, you know, Silent Witness or Waking the Dead. I'd be thinking, like, almost like, like, be like reading somebody now who's got, like, their own show with HBO in Hollywood. Do you know that kind of way? Yeah. felt like a different world. It was, it, the world has got a lot smaller. So, really, there was no, there was no Virgin Media or TV3. So, and T.G. Carr, I don't even know if T.G. Carr was making drama then. I, it was that long ago. Like, I, I honestly can't remember. Not much. Uh, so, like, if you weren't working with RTE or probably BBC Northern Ireland, that was your thing. And I kind of felt I'd been just fired off my first show on RTE. That's the end of my career. And that's how I felt. So, um, right. And did you did you have to move to England or did you work from, from here in the UK? No, I never moved. I, I had to spend time over there. Like, I went I went from from Anand Grant to the clinic. The clinic was a long like again, the clinic was a long learning. I spent about four or five years in the clinic. Yeah, and learned loads, and I met loads of people, and that's probably the first development of, of myself as a writer, like to understand production. Like at one stage, I was the lead writer, so I worked in the office and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I also met, like I probably had probably two mentors in my. Like it's funny, we I know Screen Skills Ireland edited this mentoring scheme, and I'm involved in it. But I really believe in mentoring, and it's not part of our culture in Ireland. It's mm. and, and it's really and in in my career, I had two people who probably kind of were influential in kind of making me make a step up. And one of them was uh, a story producer on the clinic called Vicky Madden. She was an Australian woman, and she'd worked in Australia. Then she'd come. She'd worked on the Bill. She'd worked with Linda Laplante, and then she went back to Australia afterwards, and she made a show called The Gloaming. Oh, yeah. Uh, with yeah, so she was the showrunner on that. Uh, and I, uh, and she made a show before that, and I wrote an episode of that. Just uh, and then she made a show before that called The Kettering Incident, which she was showrunner and writer on, which won loads of awards and did all that. And she, so when I worked on the clinic uh, for the first few years, it was like I'd said to you at the beginning. I just wrote episodes. I never met other writers. I never did anything. And I was probably and I like a, like a theme that'll run through probably all these stories is like I was very like I was kind of a late developer, but I was also kind of emotionally immature and also you know a bit like certainly on the clinic where i would do it was quite a well-paid job i would do one episode a year and then develop a few other things and i will pay my year 
Right. But I never really drove myself. I never tried to go to England. I never pushed. It was kind of like, this is fine. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm making a living. I'm living in Kilkenny. You know, I have a young child. You know, I have, you know, sometimes I can take Wednesday afternoon off and sit in the garden with my wife and have a bottle of wine or whatever. You know what I mean? It yeah. was very relaxed. I wasn't driven. Uh, but then... Vicky came in and she made me lead writer and there would be no hint beforehand. Like I was just one of writers. I never knew any others, but she'd insisted there was problems in the show and she was, and, and I didn't really know her very well, but she was going, I want this guy to be the head writer. And she brought me in and I was kind of like, what's going on? Uh, and then I worked in the office with her and I learned loads from her and I learned about production. I learned about storylining. Uh, and, and also I learned, I suppose she made me value myself a bit more. Like she used to always say, which I'd never even really thought about. She used to go, you got to go to, you got to go to England. She goes like, I've worked over there. You, you're plenty good to work in England. Don't worry about it. And I was always a bit like, well, really? Uh, uh, but, but so she changed and she gave me a lot more responsibility. And she got me to do rewrites of people's work and all this kind of stuff. And that just, it just helped me move on a bit. And it kind of shaped me out of, like, I suppose my, I wouldn't say I was inert because I was like, you know, I was working away, but I wasn't super motivated. Like I was like happy doing what I'm doing. Uh, but uh, she was the first person, I suppose, who really, um, who really did that. And I was developing other projects and developing movies and developing stuff with production companies. And then I, and I worked on a show called Legend and I'd done a few other things. And then the clinic got axed. And that was, a, the clinic got axed at the same time as the financial crash. And then suddenly, you know, you've got you've no income. And I went over to England uh, on a, to meet producers, do all this kind of stuff. And it was a real rude awakening because nothing I'd done in Ireland really mattered to anybody. Right. Uh, like you'd say, I was lead writer in the clinic and they'd be kind of like blank faced, like what? Who cares? And it really didn't. And I remember going like the kind of experience. I remember once getting a having a meeting with a with a story producer on Hobby. Uh, very nice man who I ended up working with later. And like I flew, it was the, again like I flew at my own expense over for a meeting. And I was getting off the tube. And I got a call from my agent saying like he's not feeling well today. He rescheduled, and I had to get back on the tube, go back to the airport, fly home. And like it was a time when you don't have a lot of money. That feels like a huge huge thing. And he never rescheduled. Like he never rang, you know, he never rang, he never called. But 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 it was those things were like kind of like they were they were bracing, like if you know what I mean. It was kind of like it's like the year or so ago I'd been lead, and I know it's not a huge thing, but I'd been lead writer in the clinic. I'd been nominated for an to four episodes of the clinic, and now it was kind of like what am I going to do? And I remember sitting down with my with my wife, and going like, should I give up? Like should I? actually give up is this like is this like putting too much strain on the family is this much like you know like there's only so long and but and she was always being hugely supportive like the whole my whole career but she was kind of saying to me listen if you keep doing the same things ever all the time you're just going to end up with the same results she goes like why don't you just think of like this year it was like probably january she says why don't you think of like five things you can do differently this year and do them and i did i thought like like i'll write a a sitcom spec was something I thought and I wrote it and I enjoyed writing it and up like I really didn't send it out or, but one of the things I said in my list of five was I would apply for the BBC Writers Academy yeah. and, and I did that and that changed everything like really that was like you know that one thing I got selected for that and I did have to go to London and live there for three three months. I, uh, and, and when I got selected, and my wife and daughter stayed and, and they'd come over and visit me. Um, and that was difficult for them and difficult if my wife was working. Um, so they, they had to pick up a lot of slack for me to do that. But it was the, the reason I took it was, in truth, 
was because if you got it, then you got a year on BBC shows. So you got a, you got a chance to write an episode of Holby, Casualty, EastEnders, and Doctors. And they liked you, they keep you on. And that was the reason I took it in a kind of like a very kind of like, uh, like I need to work and it'll give me long to shows and hopefully I can impress or whatever. Um, but actually going back and spending three months uh, in a classroom with like eight other writers, with John York, who's been probably the second person in my career who's been who's been like a mentor, and, and I like changed my career. Um, that was that was completely different, and I got a lot more, and I learned a lot more than 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 I had even hoped I would. And we, if you've been on the writers' academy, it's kind of amazing. You sit in a kind of like John sits at the front, and we are in a kind of like like. Uh, what would you call it? A C shape around them, but uh, and we they have computers in there which you work on the computer at your desk, and they get and each of us are rigged up to a system. So as you're writing, he'll give you exercises, or he'll get you like write this scene, do this thing. We'd all be doing it, and you click on a button, and your screen will be up in the, or your laptop will be up in a huge screen. So you're writing live, and people can watch you writing, uh, and it makes you much less self aware. And what he was really taking teaching us is like, you've got to do this. You can't be precious about it. Like you're a professional now. You've got to just think that. And it would be like you 15 minutes to do this, to go do a scene 15 minutes. To, and there is no kind of like, Oh, I need, I need my desk and I need, you know, the sun coming in at 45 degree angle to feel right. It was like, you should be able to write anywhere. You should be able to do anything. And that really stood to me on Kin, where I would write in my car or I'd write wherever wild stuff is going on all around me. But, but, but that experience of going back to school kind of for three months, relearning what I thought I knew about writing, doing writing all the time. Like I had no family with me. So I just spent all my time like in the evenings writing and all that. And I was, before I went, I was probably at a point where I might have given up, where I was kind of going, oh my God, this is just endless drudgery with very little results in the end. And I was one of the lucky ones making a, a career out of it, but it just seemed like an impossible task. That kind of changed everything for me. That changed the way I looked at writing, the way I approached writing, and then it gave me opportunities and those opportunities quickly led to other opportunities. And, and, and it was a game changer. Wow. And then, so did you start kind of pitching your own shows then more um, around no, that time? I, no, I didn't actually. I, if anything, less because like okay. commitments to those shows meant I couldn't do much on my own. Right. What it did mean was, and it was funny. I was like, oh, when was it? I was like in my my early forties, but I was kind of like a new writer in England. So they're always looking for new writers and new voices, like the production company. So suddenly I was there and I was new. But what happened with this, this I, I did an episode of Holby, and then because I had to do my rotation of each show, and then I did an EastEnders, and then I did a Casualty, and I had a producer on my Casualty episode who I really hardly met, uh, but she was, you know, she was really, really nice. And she went on to another show called Frankie, which had been developed by Lucy Cannon, and they were looking for a writer. And um, and I remember I'd been told, because you'd meet lots of people who'd been on the writers, kind of, and like really, really good people had been on it, like uh, like re really, really good writers that had gone through it, and we'd meet them, and we'd do all this, and we'd talk to them. And a lot of them had said to me, or not a lot, a few had said to me, don't stay in continuing drama too long, because once you stay in too long, it's hard to get out of it. Um, so I was conscious, like, I'm going to spend two years on these shows and then hopefully move on if I can. Mm -hmm. But I was doing my first year, and this producer who produced my casualty script went to Frankie, and they had asked her, do you know any writers? We're looking for another writer. 
And she said, well, I've just worked on Casualty. I'm this Irish writer. And they brought me over. And I remember being over there and I was meeting uh, like, a, like a really big BBC producer called Hilary Salmond, who's moved on now. She was one of the heads of BBC Studios. And she produced, like, if you look her up, amazing stuff over the years. Really, really great TV. Like, and, and a lovely woman. Like one of these kind of people you read about. And then I was kind of pitching to her and she'd read like three of my samples and she was going, yeah, yeah. And like, we had a really good meeting, but at the very end of it, she said to me, is there anything else I can read by, read by you? And I'd really kind of prepared myself for the thing. And like, I know she'd read three of my scripts. So I sent her, as I said, that, that, that monologue that I'd written when I got sacked from on home ground 10 years earlier. And it's just like, it's a monologue for stage. And she read that, she rang me back the next day and said, yeah, you can, we'll, we'll give you a job. Um, and once I got into the nine o'clock shows and I did well on that show, but they all worked in an office, the BBC, like BBC drama were all in this big office and they'd all share an office. So somebody would say, look, I've got this good writer and they, I've got moved, I got kind of recommended for other shows and my script editor on, on Frankie moved on to the Musketeers and then I moved on to the Musketeers with that. And then, and then I was drawing the attention of English production companies because they, because I'd just come out and I'd moved quickly on and things were going well. And there was a bit of kind of like a bit of like a small buzz, like let's not, let's not a big buzz, but a small buzz. And I'd gone to interviews as well for jobs, which things began to change, which I'd never experienced before. Like every every meeting I'd ever gone, probably up to this stage, where I would be pitching to them, and then I I could feel it like a change where you go to production companies or you go to TV shows and they'd be pitching for you. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So they'd be going like, "Look, we want you on our show. Can we have you on our show?" And it was just like it was it was just a slight shifting that that like I could feel something is changing, yeah. and. So things were really going well. And then I did write a spec script and it was a bit of a kind of like a bidding thing between the five companies. And at this stage, John New York had left the BBC uh, and he had been the head of company pictures and they bought it. He really liked the script and he bought it. So that's, so things were going really well and things were going well in England. And then John rang me up one day and he said, uh, look, I have a favor. Did you see this thing in Ireland where they want to do a new soap? Um, uh, for TV3 and I said I'd kind of seen it but not really and he said look you know like I'll tell you what his, his pitch was which was completely wrong and I knew it was wrong but like but he was, he'd been so good to me he was going this could be your pension and I was going yeah it's not going to be my pension <laughs> like you know that's not going to happen but anyway uh, but I felt a great kind of like not a, like loyalty debt and, and excitement at the prospect of working with John so he said look this is what we're going to do I'm doing it with Element and uh, we're going to do up the budgets and schedule and all that. And you just put a pitch in. That's, that's it. And they gave me a brief and I wrote a pitch and it took me three days to write the pitch. Uh, and then, then I went over my life and I kind of never thought I'd hear anything. And as I said, things were growing in England and things were good. And it was probably the best it had been in my career ever, where it just felt like things, it, there was a kind of a momentum behind. And then I got a call saying, listen, we're going for an interview. And again, I didn't really take it very seriously. And I work booked on shows and stuff like that. And uh, and I, you know, I went to this meeting and I met, I hadn't really worked. I'd met, I think, Ed once before maybe, but I didn't really know Ed Guiney or Andrew Lowe. And I'd never worked with them. And I met them that morning. We went out to RTE, or out to TV3 for the meeting. And um, and they were very well prepared, and John was there. And I went to the meeting, and again, it was very casual, and I didn't feel any pressure, and I didn't feel anything. But I went into the meeting, and you know you go to a meeting, and at the end of it, I was thinking, oh, my God, we're going to get this. 
we're actually going to get this. And I had not planned for this at all. Like, this was February. Uh, yeah. So, and by April 1st, I'd given up all my work. We found out about three weeks later that they were going to commission Red Rock. And then I had to drop out of everything I was doing and um, and come back and do that. And, and, that and, and I had worries because, like, I just began to make inroads in England and come back to Ireland, which I found hard to get out of in the first place. It felt like, so I kind of agreed with uh, Ed and John that I would do one year. Like I, I, I signed a contract from the, the 1st of April to the 31st of March the following year. And I said, I'll do one year. And I kind of thought people might wait for me that long. And they did. But but like I just signed it a few months and I'd done two seasons of the of the Musketeers on the BBC. Mm. And um, the, I, I, I didn't, Adrian Hodges was the showrunner and, I, and like he was very good to me I didn't really know him very well but he was always very nice and he was always like he was always very very good to me and recommended me stuff but he left then and they rang me up and said will you be showrunner on the Musketeers for season 3 on the BBC and I couldn't take it because it would have meant leaving Red Rock which was like you know my own thing and Louis yeah. behaving badly and all that kind of stuff but it was an opportunity that and I probably don't know if I would have been ready for it but, but anyway so that's that's how I ended up uh, coming back and doing Red Rock then, and that did mean I, I'm like I gave up all my work in England, and uh, for a large part of it, I had to live in Dublin Monday to Friday. So I'd come, I'd, I'd, and the same with Kim. So I'd leave Kilkenny on a Monday and go, come back on a Friday evening and work up there for the process. Uh, but that was incredibly like the two experiences of those two shows, show running, were 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 completely different. But like Red Rock was a an amazing experience like 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 i don't think like nothing else um uh, it was it was incredible it was really really incredible it was a, it was amazing to watch at the time uh it was very very exciting and you know when shows like the clinic and raw went away there was no there was no real breeding ground for writers so it was great you know in that kind of more drama space um how did you because it's it, as a soap, did it, it started out as a soap? Did it kind of, did it kind of wasn't a soap, or how did you feel about that? Well, we had to like the the, the first point. Just to go back to what you said, yeah. And like, this is just my own opinion. Like, like I I did come true when there was like the clinic, and there was raw afterwards, and I and I suppose I could have maybe like you know, do, and then there was shows like Legend and, and On Home Ground and for all its failings there was still two seasons with like eight episodes or six episodes with writers getting different writers getting yeah. yeah. It felt to me and it still feels to me that the generation after me have been completely let down. Yeah. By the system in Ireland. Like yeah. they like like I know we talk about T V and we want to make prestige T V and we want to make, like, I don't know, True Detective or whatever here, or whatever it is, is the prestige yeah. the, of the moment. But what we need to do first is create a show that allows different writers to write. And I know people are going to listen to this and go, oh, listen to him. He's writing Kid, and he did them all himself. And that is absolutely true. But on Red Rock, we brought loads of writers and directors true. And that was the model, and that was the And I'll go back and talk about Red Rock. But I do think you need that. And it's the difference. And like you look at nearly like so many of the really good writers that you like that are writing kind of like nine o'clock award-winning drama on BBC, ITV, Sky, come true, continuing drama. 
Yeah. Sally Wainwright, Paul Abbott, Jimmy McGovern, uh, Russell T. Davis. Like uh, I worked at the, under a showrunner called Ashley Farrow, who on two of his shows, but he wrote Life on Mars and Ashes to Ashes. He came through EastEnders. Like so many of these people learned yeah. to be a writer on continuing drama. There was entry level shows for writers. Yeah. And like what we do now, and this is the problem, is we give writer like the writer's first opportunity is maybe their own show. Mm. And they don't have the well, maybe they do. Hopefully they do have the talent to succeed, but some won't. And they haven't had the chance to make mistakes and learn things like like we all do. Like, you know, like, like and as I said, I know I'm a slow learner, but it took me 10 years to learn how to write in a different way, to develop the way I wanted to write. But I, I, but I was able to make mistakes on shows with it and learn from different people working on different shows and writing episodes of other people's work, which I still like doing. I have no problem with doing that. I, I, I actually quite enjoy it. Um, and uh, like I enjoyed my time in the Musketeers, I wrote recently between Red Rock and King, and I wrote on The Last Kingdom, which I loved. It was a show I loved, and it was the kind of show as a kid when I was thinking I want to be a TV writer. If you had said, "Well, this is what you're going to be writing," like Vikings and Saxons fighting and killing each other, I would have thought, "Signing up," you know. So yeah. and I really enjoyed, it and I had a showrunner I really liked on it, uh, Marta Hillier, who had been on a holiday with me. So really, really good experience. We haven't done that here, yeah. and like we we need to do it, and and like. Fair City is not the solution, in my opinion, because it, it you know, uh, for lots of different reasons, just because of the, the the production model, because of like it doesn't like for lots of different reasons. I don't think, but when we set up Red Rock, and like Red Rock was not perfect, and it is difficult. And the problem with these things is you you set up a show with great intentions, and then reality kind of punches you in the face, and then it, something else. But the plan was that it would be an entry level show. Yeah. That was the idea that you could make mistakes when there's that many episodes. You could, when you're making like two episodes a week, it's easy to kind of like allow writers to, 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 to write an episode. And if it doesn't go well, well, there's always next week. There isn't this kind of like, do you know what I mean? This high pressure. So that was the plan with, with Red Rock. And the other thing with Red Rock was, and this is John and myself spoke about this a lot, was a lot of, and, and a lot of, continuing drama or soap or whatever you want to call it, a lot of those shows are built around a production model and that production model was created in the 1980s or the 1990s. Mm. So with the way sets and cameras and the yeah. way they used it, and they've stayed in that. So technology has moved on, but they haven't. Mm. So and that, that affects the writing because you can only, you have to write around the production model. So what yeah. we decided to do with this was like, what if soap didn't exist? Like, what would you do? Like, what would you do now? And like some of the things like, you know, we wanted to do in the beginning, we we go on location. Let's do that for starters. Like we use handheld cameras and we, so we can do shots, you know, we tell stories that like have guest characters coming in and out uh, and do bring to the show the things that work from different things. And Doctors was a show that some, some of the things they do well was when we looked at, uh, we looked at like the bill as a, as a, as a, an idea because they, um, they had a precinct. It was kind of like a police soap, um, but, but they allowed guest actors to come in. They allowed 
young writers, young directors to, you know, and there is, I know there's a joke that every young actor in the, in the UK but of a certain age has appeared in, in the bill. But I think that's a really, really good thing. And the clinic did that more probably than Red Rock. But if you look back in the clinic, so many people over the years, actors, Aidan Turner, Saoirse Ronan, all these people had appeared in it. So it was, it was, it was really, really good for breaking, breaking. Yeah. yeah. That was the intention of Red Rock was to try and be, and, and, Element in particular, like Ed, was really, really conscious that, like, that we could create something that would bring true new talent, and that would benefit the industry, and I suppose benefit everybody. It would give people, it would bring, you would have, like, I'm sure they develop, and I don't know their business, but I, but I imagine they develop writers who haven't got credits or haven't got screen credits, and getting your first screen credits are often the hardest. So the opportunity of working on Red Rock, developing a writer, maybe giving him a few episodes of Red Rock to kind of cut his teeth and stuff like that really felt attractive. And that, that was the idea, and that was the... And, and that was that that was the idea behind it. And that was really, really pressured. We'd very... Like, we shot... We would... A director would choose four episodes in eight days. So we were shooting an episode in two days. And sometimes they could shoot, like, you know, page counts. Like, there was days when it was page counts of high teens. Like, really yeah. uncomfortable amount. Yeah. Um, and in the beginning, we didn't get it right. Like, things like, uh, I remember at the very beginning, when we were doing our first episodes, and I had an office there. And I used to work and write in there. But I remember them saying, like, we've edited this episode. It's five minutes short. And we couldn't deliver it to the, to the broadcaster. So what they would say to me then is, listen, tomorrow, these are, you have like, you know, Podge and Sharon and whoever else. And you have these three locations. So here are your three characters in two locations. We need a five scene standalone story right at this afternoon. And that's, and that's what you'd have to do. So it was like you would be writing it up in your office and they'd be shooting it downstairs the next day. So there was a bit of that going on and it was chaotic. And, uh, but certainly in the beginning, there was like, because I, I don't know what it was like afterwards. I left after a year as I planned to. But like it was very, very kind of high pressure, but incredibly exciting. And like the act, the cast, the the directors, the writers, everybody. It was really, really amazing. It was an incredible place. Like, it was freezing cold and it was run down a bit, but it was just an amazing place to be at. Like, it was an amazing year. Uh, and 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 it was really, it was kind of like, it was the opposite end of, uh, say, Prestige TV, like, where we're making episodes for 60,000. But I have to say, like, I do go to meetings in England and I do go to meetings in, I talk to... Uh, execs in America and all that. And it always surprises me. I many of them know Red Rock, where they know, like, as I said, when I went over before and I'd mentioned, maybe yeah. because on the BBC and maybe because it was on Amazon, we sold it to them. But, like, people go, oh, yeah, yeah, Red Rock. Yeah. So it has travelled, even though we mm -hmm. make, like, with, like, you know, like, indie filmmaking, like, making a soap, like, an indie film. Uh, and, like, when you're producing that amount of content, like, obviously, you, like, you the quality is going to be up and down a little bit. But I thought the quality was, by and large, really, really good. The performances were really good. The, the workmanship from everybody was really, really good. And it's something I'm very, very proud of. And I look back with fond memories on. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. It was, uh, it's one of those things, I as a as a working writer, it was just kind of before my time. And, uh, you know, there's... And when, when I hear you talk even about the clinic, you know, just that other 
other kind of jobs that you could do as a writer and like you know that were well paid even like even animation jobs there was a time when there was a lot more where you could do you, you know you could do a couple of episodes of this and a couple of episodes of that whereas in Ireland we just we don't have that right now and where where are we supposed to get these amazing writers for if we're not working here like do we does everyone have to go to England? Is that it? Well, it, should, it shouldn't be, and and, yeah. and like you're absolutely right. It shouldn't. It, it, it like and like I, like I benefited from other things. Like you know, and just to go back a bit, like the day I got fired from on home ground, like a week later, that RTE exec who walked with me, Joe Kalen was her name, who walked with me from uh, the city centre up to the studio and watched me get fired, rang me up and said, listen, why don't we have a meeting, Peter? And she met me and she goes, what are you thinking of doing? What would you like to develop? And I pitched an idea or two. And she goes, yeah, I like that. Why don't you write a script? We'll, we'll develop that. And she paid me to write two scripts over about, like, you know, I'd say like eight, nine months. And like at the time, it was kind of, this is great, blah, blah, blah. But I realised in hindsight that I don't think she ever was going to make it, that they ever had a slot for it, if you know what I mean. There was mm-hmm. never, but what she was doing was paying me to stay writing, making sure I did not get despondent or give up. Mm-hmm. And she was, like, she was like, just being decent, like just going like, oh, we got to invest in writers. Like, like, you know, I believe in you as a writer. we got to keep you writing. That's what we got to do. I know you've had this kind of bad experience, but like, just keep going, keep going. And like I look back on that, like oh, like it was such an act of kindness that she she wanted nothing for her. She was really really nice, like you know, and like that's you just got to nurture writers, like because like we, we talk about like if you looked at scripts I wrote when I was thirty and scripts I write now, they're completely different. Like it's taken me twenty twenty odd years to develop a style, to develop things, and like to go back to that thing I told you about, like emotion. When I was leaving the Writers Academy. And I'd done quite well on it. And John, I remember we had a meeting with John at the very end. And I didn't really know him at this stage. When you were in the Writers Academy, he was very kind of like arm's length. And he wasn't your friend or anything. But over time, we'd become friends afterwards. Right. And he's always, and I remember him having his kind of roundup with me. And he was going like, blah, blah, blah. You've done really well. He said, you will always have a career. You will always have a career in, in TV drama and continuing drama if you want it, he said. But if you want to be a really, really good writer, he said, you have to start. And he said, really digging into emotion. Because, it, like, I got better, but I still wasn't good enough. But he, he, Because the easy thing is to fall back on what you're quite good at. And I was quite good at structure and paciness and funniness and those mm-hmm. things keep it rolling along and keep everyone happy. But he's kind of going like, that's all really good and you'll always get work and blah, blah, blah. But if you want to be, if you want to be really, really good, you have to do this. And be, like, that was the second time someone I really valued their opinion that said it to me that I really, really worked hard and it became, and it was hard for me. It's not something that was easy, but I really did work hard and I've got much, much better. And then, and as I've been, been able to do that, I can see my work kind of, being even better received and getting bigger opportunities and stuff like that. But like, but that took me years of working on shows and meeting different people and experiencing different script editors and different producers and learning from each one and learning bits and pieces. And if you don't do that, if you're sitting at home on your own doing something in development, you just don't get that experience. You also don't get like, like the other thing I got, like I had a few episodes and then I started working in house like a lead writer. Working in an office, seeing how stuff is produced, for me in particular, because I didn't know enough about it, even though I directed shorts, 
you see the realities, and that begins to influence your writing. Your writing. And you also become much more flexible uh, in how you can change your work and adapt to things and much more. Because in the beginning, I was very, like, people would say, like, you know, I go, well, like, look, I've written 600 people running over the hill. What do you mean you can't get 600 people running over the hill? That's, that's what I want. Where, like, that, that was me naive uh, and, you know, and a bit mouthy. Like, and I have to say... In my in defence of the people who fired me in, in, on home ground, when I started out, I was probably mouthier than I am now, in a way. Uh, like and and again, that woman Vicky Madden, who who became a mentor in the clinic, I remember her saying to me once, you know, she was by this stage she was my friend, so she was making a point. She wasn't being completely mean to me, but the point was good, and I was complaining about something. And I was going, blah, I'm not going to do. And I remember we did a few things. And, and and she was going, she said to me, Peter, you know what? She said, you can either be mediocre or difficult. You can't be both. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I laughed because it was true. But it was a good lesson. Like, it was a good, like, well, the thing is, you shouldn't be difficult at all. That's the first thing. And that was one of the things I learned from John as well. John used to, when we were leaving, John said, look, Think about, and that was, the, the, the writer's economy was a huge influence. John said leaving to all of us. He said, like, think of your reputation as a, as a, as like a share price. And everything you do affects your share price. So he says, if you're rude to a script editor, if you're late with your, you miss your deadline, if you put in a bad draft, if you're an arsehole, your share price goes down. But inversely, if you do well or you treat people well and you do so, your share price goes up. He goes, it's not fickle. This is a small industry. Everybody talks to each other. People get reputations. He says, the really good thing about it is it's all in your control. And that really stayed with me as well. And like, I'm not saying I was awful, but like it did make me conscious of like, you know, uh, and the truth is probably a part of this is as I got on and things began to go better, I became happier. I was writing more things I wanted. And then probably the kind of the frustration that would sometimes emerge and come from me was less there, if you know what I mean. Mm. Because like I was getting opportunities that were very, you know, exciting and creatively rewarding. So I had much less of the the frustrations that were born out of like banging your head against a wall, or as you said, like what do you do? Like they, they, these are the questions like I ask myself loads of time. Like there's an RTE, an RT, or the film board. Or, or maybe BBC Northern Ireland, but those are my options. Like, what else do I do? Like, what do I do as a writer? Like this, you know, where do I go? Um, and it's, and now that the world is changing and it's, it's becoming easier to go to places and do stuff now. But, but I understand the frustration and I really feel, as I said, for generations of Irish screenwriters that haven't had the opportunities, that haven't learned. Because not everybody is going to start out as an auteur at like 21 and write their own shows all their career. Like, and like, and, and nor should you like if if you don't want it. Like, they, I I did an interview with David Chase when he came over as part of the thing. Like, he worked on like you know, uh, the Rockford Files, Northern uh, Northern Exposure, all these shows as a writer before he did The Sopranos. Like, yeah. he spent years working on people's shows, learning, meeting, meeting other writers. That's part of the journey, and it's a good part of the journey. Like, it's it's fun writing on shows. It's fun writing on other people's shows. Like, I, as I said, I like it. I still do it. I like that sometimes not having the pressure of everything is on your on your kind of back, that you can just go in, write the thing, enjoy the process, being in a writer's room with other writers. I I like that. So but but we're not we're not really we we haven't created a structure or a model in Ireland to do that. And the longer it's gone on, the harder it is to, to do it. Because at least when I was 
I suppose when the clinic was being made, RTE had the budgets to make shows, like to make two or three big shows a year, and they could finance the, the, the clinic. They don't really have those budgets available to them anymore. They don't, they're not in a position to really make a big shows, you know. And, and, I, and I'm going to be truthful. I'm not even sure, like, like I don't think they have the budget. And in truth, I'm not even sure it's what they should be doing. I think what they're doing at the moment, which is they're putting, you know, smaller amounts into much more shows and doing co-productions and all that, is probably, if you're RTE, the more sensible way to go. Like, you know, you're getting more, you're, you're spreading your risk, you're having more Irish drama on TV. The problem is you're not in a position to create a clinic. You're hoping someone else brings that in for you. And uh, but it is very difficult. I know I'm speaking a long time because it's something like without the opportunities that on home ground, the clinic, the legends, shows like that gave me just to kind of make my mistakes and learn my trade. You know, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now. And lots of people behind me have just not had that opportunity. And that's really, really unfair. And it's just like we're abandoning like TV writers in Ireland. We're not creating a, a model for them at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, on that note, just maybe um, just to talk about Kin and how that came about and the different kind of system that that is part of. Um, Kin, Kin is a kind of Kin is a funny one. Um, Kin came across there was it was like it was one show that became a, like that that we brought the market was developed by by uh, Karen Donnelly and then I got him. Involved and there was other writers involved. We brought it to market and it, it didn't really sell. And then so we went back to the drawing board and we were in a very, very lucky position, which again, I haven't had very often in my in my career, where the, the executive in America, who's like now the president of Television with Braun Studios, said to me, look, you know, nobody's buying it. Nobody's biting it all. He says, like, you know, why don't you go and write what you want? And I was kind of going, like, what do you mean write what I want? He goes, write what you want. Write the show you want to write. And it was like they put a bit of money into it. So they were, it wasn't like a normal development. It had, it had probably amassed a slightly bigger development, uh, development kind of like bill. So it was a show that wasn't easy to write off at this stage. So having been brought on as a writer into a writer's room, having been kind of graduated to a higher position within the room, I was suddenly given an opportunity to go write whatever you want to write. And I said, look, I'd rather like to write a family drama about a family who are criminals. Uh, and he goes, well, go write it. And then, then I did, and they liked it, and they brought it out, and it began to make sales and do well and attract cast. And it was, it was a funny model because it's not like it's not like a BBC model or it's not like a Netflix model where you ever get, like, you get a day, which I always wanted, uh, where they go, your show is greenlit, which I did get with Red Rock, where they said, yeah, we're making this, let's go make it. It was never that. It was just kind of like, here's more money for another thing, we're hiring thing. But I would kind of say to Brown, like, well, are we greenlit? And they go, well, not yet, you've got a soft grind, greenlit. And I'd be kind of like, what does that mean? Like, you know, when you're trying to like give up other work, do I like I'd be giving other opportunities I've been turning down? I was going, what am I doing here? What is going on? And the guy, David in Braun, would say to me, he's going, you're never going to get a green light. Because you'll know your show is getting made because you'll be standing on set and they'll be making it. And I kind of went, okay, well, listen, I'm just going to embrace this system as kind of as, as stressful as it is. And then, then the pandemic came and all that kind of stuff, which made it even harder and all these stuff. But what they did do, and it was very unusual because what Braun did was they gave me 
incredible creative freedom. Like they never once said to me, no, you can't write that storyline or you can't write that thing or you can't have that. They never once overruled me and made me write something I didn't want to write. And that's really, really rare. Like, like you know, that's maybe happened once or twice in my whole career. So to be at this point where, you know, and that's not to say I don't get notes. I do get notes and we discuss them and we decide what we're going to do and what we don't. And, and certainly later when we the show sold to AMC, we were already shooting um, and they would give us notes in the edit. And I do have to take their notes, you know, like I do. Like not every single note all the time, but like I want to have a reason not to, to tell AMC I'm not doing your notes. So like it's a different process. But in the build-up, all I got was, you know, all I got was real support from them. And then we went into casting before we knew. And I remember, like, this is just a small anecdote, but, like, I remember writing a character and David Devoli saying to me, like, you know, you know, name an Irish actor you'd like in your show to play this part. Just name. He goes, and I'll go get him for you. And I was going, I'd like Kieran Hines, because I love Kieran Hines. And, cause I've yeah. grown, and he went and got Kieran Hines. And you just, and at those things, you're kind of going, and he'd bring me up like a week later, go, I'll cut you here tonight. So things like that, he was brilliant at. Like, and they were really, really supportive. But what they did do then was there was two executive producers who had both worked in Marvel TV. One of them, uh, Samantha Thomas, had worked in Bad Robot with J.J. Abrams, and um, she'd been there for Lost. She'd worked with Noah Hawley. Then they'd gone on and they'd been producers in, in Marvel. They'd done Jessica Jones, Daredevil, uh, loads of them. They'd done hundreds of hours of TV as producers, as on-set producers. And they, I learned loads from them. Like about producing, about schedules, about everything, about protocol. Now, they have different kind of ways of doing things in America. And this was a slightly, like, well, it's not a low-budget show, but it's not a huge-budget show either. Um, but but the way they went about things, there was Sam and Emma, uh, Emma Fleischer. Those were the two producers, and they were both in Ireland. And, like, I could call on them for anything, uh, And that was an incredible, an incredible experience to, like, like Red Rock, I was the showrunner and I had loads of power and I could do what I wanted. And in truth, like sometimes I felt, and this is probably untrue, so I'm going to put it in with a disclaimer. Sometimes I felt on Red Rock, they don't even watch the episodes before they put them on air. Like we have no feedback. Like we used to sometimes have meetings where we go, can you say whatever word? And we go, let's put it in and see if we get any pushback. And then you tune in and it would be on telly and nobody would say a word. And unless it was like, like, so nobody was, so we had this complete freedom to do what you want creatively, which was really exciting. But but this was on a bigger scale and there's not as much freedom. Like there were, you, you know, Braun are still putting a lot of money in and they're still watching you, but it's working on a much, much bigger scale with a much bigger, you know, budget, like a bigger cast, everything. So it's a different kind of experience. Uh, and and it felt like, as I said, where Red Rock was a little bit like, not a little, it, it was sometimes chaotic. And it felt like we were just kind of seat of our pants. Well, for me, not like Element were brilliant and all those were really good, but me on the ground running it, it felt sometimes a bit like I'm just barely kind of keeping it all together and writing and doing all that. Where this felt, you know, I was in a, a bigger machine. And that was very, very exciting. Uh, really exciting. Cool. So anyway, so that's how it came about. So and and I was lucky, like they, they supported me during the writing. They would say, Do you want other writers? Do you want to write it yourself? Do you want this? Do you want that? They were always like the the thing is always like, what can we do for you? What can we do for you to help you? 
Yeah. And that was, that's the, and they're still like that in, in post production. It's like, what can we do? What can we do? Do you need this? Do you need that? We'll fly somebody over. We'll do this for you. We'll get this, you know, and it's always support, support, support. Um, and that's really, you know, that's, that's been brilliant. And it's just been an eye opener seeing it. And I'm still working on it. I'm in post at the moment, which, like, so I would have, before I did this this morning, I would have watched you know, a cut of an episode and then I'll talk about that later to the editor. Uh, so I'm still doing stuff with meetings on titles and stuff like that. So, um, and one of the producers, Samantha Thomas is very experienced in editing. So sometimes on, I would sit in on the Evercast edit with her and see how she does the editing. And again, learning loads from her and her experiences, which has been really, really brilliant. But again, it's like every stage, every step in the process of a writer is you get an opportunity, you do the job, you learn from it, you kind of you amass kind of knowledge or whatever, and you bring that knowledge to the next to the next job. So this is hopefully another step that like all the stuff I've learned here, I get to do again somewhere else. Now you may not, you know how kind of capricious the industry is. I mean, I remember I have another TV show of my own, who knows? Uh, but like, that is the hope that all the stuff, like, cause I've learned a lot and I have made mistakes on this and things, if I could go back, I'd do it differently, but I have learned loads and it's been like an incredible experience. And the, you said about writing emotions and that you had to crack that. Do you feel like, like how, how is that working with this show? I think it's much better in the show. I like it. Like, look, I, I have a story producer, like I have my girlfriend, I'm going to call her a story producer or story consultant. I have a friend who's a writer called Fiona Series, and she's an Australian writer who lives in London, and she's brilliant at emotion. Like, you know, and like, and I chat to her as I'm doing this. I will never be Fiona Series. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, like that's not where my talent lies, uh, and I know that, and that's where her talent lies. So I don't expect that that's, that's the angle I bring, but it is much, much better. And I think, and I think over the course of the first few episodes, you know, maybe not the first one as such, but over the course of the next few, it is quite emotional. And the show is quite emotional. And I, and I could only have done that by, you know, by, by pushing myself all, all the steps along the way. And it's really interesting because like, if, like, if we want to talk about my neurosis, like if, if I was, when I'm lying awake at night and I worry, like it's called Kin. And it's about a family. It's a family drama about a family in Dublin who are who are involved in crime. Um, now, obviously, there will be comparisons with Love Hate because Love Hate has been such a kind of cast such a shadow on the Irish TV landscape. And and but it's not like that. And I suppose I think people who tune in for, for a pure kind of gangster show like Gangs of London will be disappointed because, or would not disappointed, will not get what they expect because this show is a family drama if you know what I mean. And it's about the relationships and emotions of, a, of members of a family. So, you know, and it may be people who might like that kind of thing will think this is Gangs of London and not tune in, which it isn't. So it's a funny slight, you know, like if I'm being really glib, you could say it's gangsters with feelings, uh, <laughs> you know, but, um, and that is very glib. But, but, but you know what I mean? But I have tried to tell a story within a genre that I really like. Like I love gangsters, films and TV shows and all that, they're all, but like with, with its own, uh, hopefully uh, its own identity. Um, and we'll see how that works. It may work. It may not work. Like I won't get to decide that anyway. People yeah. Will, so, you know. And are you tapping in like that thing that you did with Red Rock where you're tapping into things that are going on in, in Irish society? Are you doing that with this? 
Do you mean like Gangland? Well, yeah, a bit, a bit of both. Yeah, kind of like Gangland stuff, or just you know the stuff that's, I guess, that kind of lore. But then also how how society reacts to that as well. Kind of a little bit. Uh, what we did is it's kind of like it's a slightly heightened world. First of all, we shot it during the, the pandemic, so yeah. we shot it, like that created loads of challenges. We shot it during from like October to to the end of February. So during there was times in January where we had the the like worst infection rate in the world, and we were still shooting away. Uh, but that creates problems with the world and what you can do and like extras and crowd scenes and the background and all that kind of stuff. So there was lots of challenges like that with it. So it, it meant that um, through necessity, the the show has to be a little bit more like interior, if you know what I mean. And I don't mean just interiors inside buildings, but about people and a bit more, you know, claustrophobic. And we built that into the storyline. <clears throat> like I would read up, a lot about the gangland stuff. I would be on boards.ie gangland treads and read that out of curiosity and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I'm very, very careful. Like, like there's already been articles, like, and there was articles when we were shooting that this is about the Kinnahans because it's called Ken and the family, mm. family in the show are called Kin, Kinsella. Um, but it's nothing. Like, there's no character in this show that that and that, like first of all I'm gonna say there's no character based on anybody in real life. But like but beyond that, like nobody's gonna tune into this. I'm I can I know completely nobody's ever gonna tune into these this show and go, oh that's the that's you know, you know, one of the uh, kinhens or that's one of the hutches or whatever wherever. Like do you know what I like no characters bear resemblance. And it is a slightly heightened world and we made this you know this decision on purpose because we knew because Braun were making it we knew we were making it for RTE but also for an American audience and what we wanted it to do was look like the houses maybe they live in some of them in particular are probably more architecturally nice maybe than so it's not like it's it's they live in fancy houses dressed really well uh, have big cars and you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it had a slightly kind of lush, cinematic, heightened kind of take on it. It's not very gritty. Yeah. It's like you know that at all. Um. But but I did make very conscious decisions to be sure that it didn't resemble real life. That there are one or two broad strokes that do resemble real life. Um. But but beyond that. Like uh, it doesn't at all, and I made sure no characters resembled anybody in real life. But but so so I was both doing research on Gangland and getting information and getting a feel of the world, while also being careful not to 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 open ourselves up to direct comparisons with what's going on, because there are one or two storylines that that inevitably people will say, well, that's X. But but I made sure that everything around it is not like the real world, so the comparisons don't really stand. I know that's a bit cryptic, and um, when it goes out, like it's very, I don't want to give away stories in advance. But when it goes out, you know, I'd, I'd happily talk about it and what what stories yeah. we did. But yeah, yeah but it, I've been conscious not to make it because I, you know, because that's not what it is. It's about a particular family, um, you know, in Dublin. So we'll right. see. Um. I, I I won't take up too much more of your time. It's it's been amazing hearing this whole journey. Um, what is what's just to go out on a hype because we've seen a, heard a lot of the kind of lows. But what is your favorite thing about being a, a screenwriter? 
it's really, really hard. Like, there's lots of, there's, like, this is quite personal to me. There's lots of things that I like, like like things like you're your own boss, you get to spend time at home, you you know, all, you get to work with great people, you know. I suppose for me, in, in, in a funny way, like I would have had, as I said, a very disrupted childhood. I would have spent a lot of time at boarding school and I would have clung to this idea throughout it, like, you know, things might be kind of shit now, but one day I will be writing movies or doing whatever. And to kind of have achieved that, but also having gone through things where, like, as I said, in school, where I wasn't very good at school, I wasn't very kind of, I was like average to below average. And to find something, you know, you really, really enjoy doing and something like you're good at. Like, I'm not saying, as I said, I'm the best in the world or anything, but something that you can go into a room and you're good at your job and you enjoy doing it and you're being creative and you've kind of achieved the thing you always wanted um, is really, really good. And I and like I don't, and it's funny saying it now. That every now and then, when I'm kind of flying back from London or flying back from a thing or a meeting, I do because I do moan. I like I moan to my wife about oh deadline or blah, blah blah, and like I do. And there's a danger that you can lose sight because it is pressured. It is it is hard at times to be a writer. It's like I don't find it easy, but 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 that that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. But I do find like you know there's like, like I found it one time in my life that I was always focusing on the negative of the writing. And I was always, and perhaps that's because I wasn't writing what I liked or whatever, but but my focus would always be on how difficult it was, how hard it was. And I was kind of like, and I had to start reminding myself again that this is what I always wanted. This is what I'm good at. And like, I do actually really, really love doing it. And I think just reminding myself of that, uh, and in those moments when I do that are probably the nicest moments, but they're rarely when I'm writing. They're usually when I'm on a plane sitting on my own and I think, oh my God, I've just come back from a story meeting. Imagine if my kind of my 15-year-old self could see me now, kind of. Um, he probably is disappointed because everything disappointed him, but uh, <laughs> it's, still, it's, it's those things that I really like. I like doing something that, that I think I'm good at, that I enjoy doing, that I get to be creative, and uh, and it feels good. That's a great place to end it, Peter. Thanks so much for your time. Really looking forward to seeing Kin and maybe we might talk to you again after. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sorry I can't be more kind of like specific about Kin, but like hopefully when it comes out, if, if there's anything left for me to say, I see I've got probably the longest podcast you've done. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, if there's anything left that you want to hear from me, we can chat about it after Kin comes out. Great. I love talking to you, Paul. Cheers. Thank you. This is how it's always been. Double Love is a podcast in which we explore the strange and terrifying world of Sweet Valley High, book by book. Join me, Anna Carey. And me, Karen Moynihan. As we revisit one of the maddest series of books ever written or ghostwritten. If you ever read about the perfect blonde Wakefield twins, Elizabeth and Jessica, with their eyes the colour of the Pacific Ocean, then you might enjoy listening to us absolutely tearing them to shreds. Affectionately, of course. But of course. And even if you didn't, there's still plenty of drama, kidnappings, stolen boyfriends and seemingly mandatory school dances to entertain you. Find us on the Headstuff Podcast Network and wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.